Hey everyone, this is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast for students looking to break into the startup space. And today, I'm speaking with a very good friend of mine, Brandon Tushan. So Brandon is a consultant at McKinsey, and I wanted to have him on the program so that he could explain what his advice to undergrads would be, as well as young professionals or students who are just getting into the corporate world. He has an incredible story about pivoting in his own career path, and I wanted him to share it. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Perfect. So you went to Queens, right? Twice, yeah. What, what was that like? Because I went to the arts and science side, went to the business side. Did the faculties in, in your disciplines kind of congregate and you, you did some pretty magical things? Like, what was that like? Yeah, so I, I guess Queens, I, I do truly think is a magical place. Like, I really, really enjoyed my undergrad. And frankly, I think like what made it for me, aesthetics aren't everything, but I grew up in Waterloo, and if you've ever seen the universities there, uh, when they did the architecture, pretty wasn't exactly what they were going for. So first time I visited Queens, I think you've got that romanticized vision of your head of what a university looks like, what a university feels like, right? You see the old buildings and the limestone and the ivy. So that was a big part of my experience and like my draw to go there. And honestly, I felt like it was just a tremendous place for me to be. It's such a unique environment in the sense that Kingston's a student town. Like it's only students really within a 15 minute area. It's entirely university driven and kind of just allows you to make those connections and figure yourself out in a really consequence free environment compared to like, say, U of T, which at the time I thought I really wanted to go maybe U of T, get an urban Toronto experience coming from a smaller city. Very happy looking back. I didn't. And Queens and Kingston was awful, awesome for that. And then actually, like academically in my program, I didn't know what I really wanted to do when I started out. So I did sciences in my undergrad. I thought I wanted to do geophysics, like exploratory oil and gas geology. And then halfway through my first year, I kind of figured out I really had no interests in rocks. Loved all my professors in geology. I thought they were great, but frankly, staring at rocks in a mining camp became very less appealing very quickly. So Took a couple of physics classes. I had a phenomenal physics professor in first year, James Fraser, who I think won like a national award for excited teaching. So kind of like a Neil deGrasse Tyson mad scientist type and kind, kind of inspired me to stick with it. I always had somewhat of an aptitude for math and I thought I was decent at math. And then I did a physics degree and I found that I'm utterly terrible at math. Convinced me to stick with it. And yeah, in terms of like interaction with other faculties, I guess... Physics is relatively isolated from most things. So how it works at Queens is uh, they have two physics programs. There's pure physics, and then they, which is under the science department, arts and science, same as econ, same as UCASH, same faculty. And then there's also engineering physics, which is under ENG. And we basically split all the same classes. I think the engineers have like a little more of an applied bent. We have a little more math bent, but got some exposure there and enjoyed my time throughout. But one thing, thing I will say is a connection to other things, other faculties, other fields is maybe a little lax. So physics is very focused on physics. There's not a lot of education on what are you going to do next? What can you do with this? It's mostly just, you know, get your degree, now do a master's, now do a PhD. And like the professors I had are absolutely exceptional, very, very brilliant people, but very academically focused. It's not an applied discipline by any sense. I mean, quite frankly, physics is, in my, in my mind, one of the purest sciences out there. Why do you, why do you think that is? 
I suppose at Queens specifically, and like a lot of the engineering physics folks do go into more advanced industry type work. And I think it's a tremendous toolkit for a lot of that. I think the thing is Queens specifically focus a lot on like uh, dark matter research. So which is a little bit more applied as you get into like particle physics, that sort of thing. That's typically where you derive a lot of quants from that's like pure data science. Queens is uh, focused on a specific subset that's very theoretical, very, very fascinating, and a little less connected to those sort of things. So metallurgy, advanced materials, are electromagnetics aren't a direct specialty. A lot of the professors, some of them do that, obviously, so they don't need to come after me. But I think that's why. And a lot of, uh, just in Canada in general, compared to like the States, I think a lot of our more applied sciences are directly under engineering departments versus the states where like the physics department is doing applied research more frequently. I guess for someone that did have that contrast where you did go to the business school for your master's, you started off in the sciences, those two worlds are different, but they they can coexist and are incredibly complementary to each other. How would you recommend someone at an undergrad level goes about interacting with these kinds of faculties? What has worked best, in your opinion, between those interactions? I think uh, getting a good foundation is critical, which for me, like physics and math was outstanding. And I didn't really see the value of it immediately following my undergrad. So I found myself in a place where I had a, a benchmark for mathematical rigor, and I learned a lot of math that I thought I'd never use again. And frankly, a lot of it I don't think I will use again. But once I figured out that that way of thinking, that way of looking at things, that way of like just rigorously trying to drill something into your brain could be applied to other fields, it immediately started to become valuable to me. So combining that with like a little bit of business school, a little bit of more applied analytics, I was really able to do things where, oh, that like math is actually relatively simple to me. I've done things much more complex, and now I just need to apply it to a real world problem. I kind of got the best of both. So I definitely say it worked out in me and my end. Honestly, looking back, I'd probably just do a Bachelor of Commerce looking forward and save myself four years of math and pain. But I think having a good foundation, especially in my past work as a data scientist, is invaluable. And I think there's skills that take a very long time to learn, and then there's some that are a little quicker to pick up. So data science is all the rage right now, and I'll use this as an example as somewhat ex-data scientist. You can pick up like... uh, Python or pandas and an applied technique and learn how to code relatively quickly. But if you start jumping ahead to algorithms based on math that's many, many years beyond a base level, you're going to end up with some serious difficulties because it's very foundational. You can't skip things in certain fields. You can in others. So like I find in business in the real world, you can go read and get a decent view of an industry or how something works, but you can't skip ahead six years of math education because you can figure out one concept at a time piecemeal, but everything's very, very connected, hard science engineering. So I'm very, very thankful for four years of foundational prep, but I'm also very thankful to not be doing that anymore as well. I think something that I was really missing in my undergrad is I didn't intermingle. And I think it's really easy just to end up in that that stream, right? You're either in commerce or you're in physics and you hang out with people in physics or in commerce and you kind of have no idea how the other side lives. So I think clubs or like Apex or starting your own thing and finding what you don't know, what you want to do, what paths are out there is tremendous. Like I personally found in physics, I had no idea what bankers did. I had no idea what consultants did. I had no idea about anything that wasn't math and I didn't know these were doors that were open to me. 
And then on the same time, I had skills, like I knew how to code. We like did coding for six years, but I had no idea how that was of value to anyone. If I talked to someone in CS or talked to someone in business, worked on some projects, did more clubs in undergrad, got more involved, I would have had a much more holistic big picture. And I would have actually figured out what's valuable, what's not, what do I need to know? And what do I know now that I can actually use? So where do you focus? Because I think it's easy just to get caught up in keeping your head above water, for lack of a better description. Like, did you find it hard to bridge the gap between certain disciplines and bring it into the business realm? I'll give you an example. Like I did a, I did quite a bit of music for a number of years, whether that be production, post-production, and it was a bit difficult because I was in the mindset of trying to create something versus monetize it. Is it the same for the sciences? I, I don't think so. So I guess monetizing anything is a tricky business, right? I th- I'm more of a, a product than a process person. And I think that just comes from, from science and building things. So for me, it was actually quite natural. I think it was just making that little uh, connection between, oh, you can actually build something and then you've got to decide if it's worthwhile, which I think is kind of the classic engineer trap, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to build this shit because it's super cool. Does anyone, act- does anyone actually want it? We'll figure that out later. So I'm firmly in Camp A. I, I just like to build things because they're cool. And that's something I'm excited to get back to at some point in the near future. Actually, monetizing it is, it depends, right? So if you're amazing at sales, you can sell anything. It doesn't matter how good the product is. So that skill set overpowers. And then if you make a product that's so amazing, you don't really need to know how to sell it that well. So if you're in the middle or you're kind of so-so at both, that's when you need both skill sets. And that's when it's valuable to bring it together. But for me, I guess undergrad was all product side, for lack of a better description. I learned how to code. I didn't think it was of use to anybody. And then master's was, oh, I'm actually solving real problems. And I can kind of cherry pick some of the product stuff, some of the tools I was using before. So mix of both. What would you say was the coolest thing you built? So the coolest thing I built in my undergrad was me and my housemate and two other buddies for a, like a capstone thesis. We, we recreated this superconductor experiment they did in Stanford, which is like a reproduction of like the basically the original paper where they proved uh, this superconductor exists. It was a hilariously futile waste of resources. It somehow worked in the end, but it took like six months. And for context of how much just lit money on fire, at one point, we electroplated gold onto platinum to use as a wire because we had those metals. There wasn't really a scientific justification for that. We also put a lot of really cool cold stuff in a tube. And when I say cold, I mean you put your hand in the tube and then you take it out and you don't have a hand anymore. That was a lot of fun. And I don't like, honestly, I, I learned a lot of code just trying to build this thing, but it was fun soldering pieces together, doing some wiring, reading papers. So. That was the coolest thing I did for a long time. And then in my master's, for my thesis capstone then, I was doing a lot of computer vision work. So I piggybacked off this research that was being done on the West Coast, basically using satellite imagery to predict poverty in Africa. So I was doing a lot of humanitarian work at my day job, and I kind of like smoothed my way into a partnership with the Red Cross, who were looking for a faster way to do a response. So the idea was Google Earth takes a lot of images of Earth every second. You can get access to that database if you basically just say you're a humanitarian, you somewhat inflate your credentials, which is great. Shout out Google Earth there. And then I basically built a neural net that like takes in these images, looks at sub-Saharan Africa. And the idea is all the lights somewhere go out. Maybe you should take a look into that. Maybe we're in the midst of a crisis. 
also thought it had a bit of a dual purpose because I was working with Quaff. So I was like, you know, we could probably use this as a hedge fund. I know there's a lot of spying on those Pachemkin factories you got in Asia where maybe the lights are on, maybe they're not. Pretty hard to fake electricity usage. Definitely wasn't accurate enough for that. Cool concept. I'll tell you in the end, it was slightly more precise than randomly guessing. So it technically works. Keyword is technically, but was fun nevertheless. And now my, uh, my Google cloud storage is just full of 30,000 images. I was also work from home COVID. And I think I cost my parents 600 bucks because somehow they... Oh, just they, with? <laughs> no, so they didn't have unlimited internet in 2020. And I was like, I, I didn't know they didn't because how do you not do that? And the final train of my net took like, I, I ran it on GCP. It took like 26 hours to run. And then I got the internet bill the next month. It was just... <laughs> I just had like a, cl- a cluster running for 26 hours trying to train this model. So yeah, that was, that was a fun payment at the end, but good, good times. Oh my God. That's funny. Well, at least you're honest. At least you're honest. That's the most important thing. Um, <laughs> you pointed out something there that I, I thought was really important. It reminded me of being able to find balance in the sense that on one hand, you do want to take on these tasks as an undergrad that do look good on your resume that you can kind of bolster a little bit. But on the other hand, the beauty I think about being a student is that you do have the ability to plunge into projects that don't have any immediate or even long-term payoff. How would you recommend balancing those two things? Where it's cool if you have the portfolio manager position, but at the same time, maybe you can try and start your own thing. And who cares if it fails? I think the balance depends on where you want to go. And I'll use myself as an example. I've always been on the, oh, it doesn't matter. I know I can do things. I know I'm this. I know I'm that. I'll build something cool on my own. And then you go apply for a job and boom, you get hit by a GPA filter. So I think the balance just there is you have to do well enough that you meet the bar, right? And like using the example of say like uh, like med school admissions, which is a, a poor example, but once you hit like a certain GPA or a certain test score, everything beyond that is extracurricular and that's what matters. So there's a reason paths exist. And like when I mentor people, I, I do recommend, you know, like it's easy to stay on the path. You go to consulting, you go banking, maybe you hate it, maybe you don't, but it's predetermined for a reason. And it's easy enough to figure yourself out along that way. It's safe. And then you can take risks outside of it. I would always say, put yourself in a position where, you don't have any doors closed for you. That's the worst thing in the world. And that's something I've learned coming out of undergrad and then going back to a master's because I found myself closing some doors is the single worst thing is looking back and going, shit, like that door's closed to me instead of making a conscious choice where, no, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. So undergrad starting out, I'd say like, yeah, you have to do minimally well in school you have to meet a certain standard just so you have those options open if you want them but then yeah pursue what you're actually passionate about and honestly they too uh they combine very nicely in the end because once you meet that like base standard of whatever it is whether it's like a a three or a 3.5 like I, i don't think grades mean much but once you meet that basic bar to get your foot in the door everything else all those side projects all the interesting stuff that's what people care about and that's where you're going to derive value from but Get that first gig, get on the safe path, and then take those big chances. Because trust me, it's much harder finding yourself off the path and trying to like careen back into it. What do you think about this, though? I've found that some individuals, particularly in 
certain sectors of business, they tend to acquiesce into it where they start out as, let's say, an analyst or very junior position, and then they keep going up and up and up. It's kind of like this nextism, hedonic treadmill kind of thing where they're getting all these promotions, they're getting all the status and all the other cool things that come along with, you know, a big fancy job title, but it might actually not be what they want to do long-term. What did you do to make sure that didn't happen to you? Well, yeah. So I, I guess it depends on your risk tolerance, right? And I, I, I feel those considerations right now too. Like I've got student loans, I've got bills, I've got to pay. So in my current spot, like I'm not in a position where I can take extreme risks. I have things I care about. I've got dependents. I've got rent to pay. And I think the best thing you can do is you, you've got to avoid that lifestyle creep, which is something I'm a little conscious of because it's it's really easy, right, to get swept up in that, oh, you're making a lot of money. Like you're going to buy that new car. You're going to buy that new condo. Or you're not going to pay down your loans and you're not going to be liquid. So it, it just comes down to flexibility because, yeah, exactly what you described. You end up 35 and you've got that $2 million mortgage and your wife's going to leave you if you lose the job. So that's when you can't take any chances, right? And so I think it's just being sure what you want to do and prioritizing flexibility and freedom over other things, which is something I'm trying to do right now. And like, you do kind of get lost in it. Like if you're not focused, like I found myself, I, I want to code more simply because I haven't coded in eight months since I've started the new gig. And you find yourself like, oh, I want to code on weekends. And then you make it to the weekend and you're exhausted. So it comes down to time or money. You end up money rich, time poor. And then you can kind of just go along with it, right? So you got to know, like, I think for me, starting my own thing is something I want to do. So I think I've gotten a little more into the lifestyle, which I need to curtail. But I want to be liquid enough that I can say, okay, you know what? I could actually change this. I could take a chance. I could take two years off and build something. And that's something you only really have the opportunity to do when you're young and something for people in school, like do that, man. You're never going to have a better time to actually build something or do something than when you're in school, because your risk is quite low. You can spin it into an actual safe position. If it flames out, if it's successful, fantastic, you're already there. So you're time rich then. So take advantage of that. What are you most optimistic about in the future? And what do you fear most? So for me personally, like, I think the thing I'm most optimistic for is honestly, right now, I don't need to be striving for something better. You touched on the hedonic treadmill for a long time. And I think I was on that for two years. And I was basically at that point where, like I said, I came out of undergrad and I felt like I made some mistakes, doors were closed, and I felt a little jaded by it. I was like, damn, I fucked up. And maybe I shouldn't swear too much on the podcast, but I was upset with myself a little bit and i decided i was just going to work so hard i was going to get the best of the best of the best i was going to do the next thing and the next thing and then it kind of snowballs right so you're like you get to this job and then you're like oh you get you start out like i gotta do a vc fund and then you're like okay i gotta get to the next vc fund i gotta get to the next startup and then better 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 i gotta get in a better place oh i should be doing better things i should be doing more things and i got tied up in that for a very long time and now i kind of find myself in a place where First off, I'm satisfied where I am and I'm able to just take stock and breathe and then decide what do I want to do next. So personally, what I'm looking forward to right now is honestly just kind of figuring out exactly where I want to go and feeling the ability to make these things happen without like a real like looming time deadline. Like I'm not in my master's where I'm like, man, I need to line up like a full-time job in 16 months or I'm screwed. So it's like just kind of establishing myself where I'm at 
I'd like to lean back more into the entrepreneurial side or maybe head back to VC at some point. But in terms of like career, it's, I think it's more just on autopilot. So for me, like, honestly, I'm just kind of looking forward to getting to travel more, getting to learn more about myself and my partner and kind of just setting up in a place where I'm like unafraid and available to take chances. My, uh, my dad always says, do things before you get furniture, which I think it's a pretty standard motto for life. I'm not weighed down right now and I'm staring at like another five years where I'm not going to be. So I'm mostly just looking forward to, to learning as much as I can, taking as many chances as I can and figuring that out. And then the flip side of that, you know, what, what am I worried about? It? The thing I'm worried about is the exact same thing you, uh, you talked about earlier, which is like finding yourself stuck, finding myself in a position where, oh, I, maybe I don't like what I'm doing, but I can't leave because it enables my lifestyle. And I don't think that's a huge concern. Like, I think it's something I'm cognizant of now. I guess I'm only really worried about making the right choices and finding out what I really want to do because it's... It's a cause of a bit of anxiety, right? Like, and it's it's good and bad, but when you find yourself with choices, it's always, am I making the right choice? Am I doing the right thing? So I don't think I'm too worried right now. I'm worried maybe five years from now, I'm going to be 30 and I'm going to be on a path. And obviously there's an infinite amount of time to make changes, but I've been in a place now, I think, where I don't want to say I failed because that's a poor choice of words, but I've blown up my life before and I've kind of rebuilt everything from the ground up. So that's not something I'm too terrified to do again. Hopefully not. Are you comfortable talking about that? Like, what do you mean by blow up? Cause I trust me, trust me. I've fucked up a lot of things too. So <laughs> don't worry. Well, yeah, 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 man. I'm happy to talk about it. So when I came out of undergrad in 2019, I actually went to teacher's college, which I have the utmost respect for teachers. I had fantastic teachers my whole life. Teacher's college is another story. Don't go to teacher's college is my only advice. And I found out immediately just how miserable it made me. First off, they make you sit there every day. It's kind of like prison in the sense that it's you're sitting in a classroom like nine till six and they don't care what you do. So you can choose to just sit there and talk or you can choose to do something to make it better. So I got a lot better at coding because I was like, man, if I'm stuck here every day, I'm just going to pull out my laptop and code is make use of the time. Absolutely despised it. It made me really miserable. So I did it for a whole summer. And like, I love teaching the kids. So I love being on PRAC. I used to work with kids with special needs in a past life. So knew that was something I was passionate about. Couldn't stand a lot of the, the people that were teaching me, like the teacher's college profs or the teachers I was working with on PRAC. So decided that wasn't for me, but I had kind of nothing set up. So like I had a poor undergrad GPA and I was barreling down a professional path that I hated and wanted nothing to do with. And honestly, like even other things, like I felt like perception kind of changed because I know, I don't know, like you, you don't really think you care about how other people perceive you or think about you. And then I instantly went overnight from like, oh yeah, you know, I'm studying physics and people are like, oh wow, you're really smart or you're this or that. And then you tell people you're in teacher's college and they just kind of give you like a side eye or like an eye troll. And feeling that uh, like, so the fancy job titles aside, like that's, something I didn't think I cared about at all and wouldn't feel, it does kind of impact you a little bit. So it kind of reached a head where it's like the end of the summer. I was in a long-term relationship at the time that was really not going well. It was really tremendously damaging to my mental health. And I think by like September, I got an offer to go to a two-week internship at this startup in Boston. And Teachers College lets you do like a, an alt prac where you go, basically, most people just go to Tulum, right? You go teach at a, a school in Tulum for a couple of weeks and they'll pay for it, whatever. 
I knew I didn't want to teach, so I found this humanitarian startup that I was like tangentially trying to sell as education. And and then they said no. They said you can't do it. And I, I at that point I was just like, okay, like how do I drop out? <laughs> it's like, oh, you got you do this, and I was like, okay, great, like just I'm done, like. So I dropped out then and I had nothing lined up. I texted the people from the internship and I was like, Hey, can I start like now I'll come to Boston for free. I'll, I'll cover that on my own dime. And then same day, I literally broke up with my partner at the time and it was tremendously (laughs) difficult to deal with. But I literally just like, I went from like, I was in school, I had a path and I was in a relationship and I thought I was doing what, but I just was, I was miserable. And I was just like, you know what? I'm chopping everything. I'm dropping out of school. I'm breaking up with my partner. I'm going to go push on this like random Boston thing, which is like two weeks. I've got no prospects. I've got no plans. I just signed like a year lease and I'm super underwater. And then, uh, yeah. So like the next week I like interviewed for like MMA. I went and talked to Smith and it was like kind of a shot. And then ended up going to Boston where that startup, I was there two weeks and then I ended up staying there two years and they paid me. So that two weeks and then I started my master's and I did a lot of things but I basically there was like a two-month period where I had to have faith that things were going to work out and I literally like destroyed everything I had planned out for like a year six months and started from zero and powered through it so tough difficult and honestly like my mental health at the time was far from optimal but I met my current partner like that's how we started dating during the interim and like I was able just to kind of have that perspective that like, it's not so bad. Like it sucks for a couple months and like, you're kind of worried. You're like, oh, I'm going to have to move back to my parents. I'm never going to get a job. I'm never going to figure things out to, oh, okay. I got a little bit better. Oh, I got a little bit better. And then, yeah. So I'm not afraid to take those chances now because I've been there. And I think that was probably the most valuable experience I've had. But ideally I'd recommend you just don't do that. And you just like, do well enough in your undergrad that you have like a decent job lined up and then you can blow it up with some money in the bank. I mean, you did hit your low, if you will, to to some extent. I'm not suggesting people need to dive into go below the poverty line to feel what it's really like to have nothing. But there is something to be said about being there and not being afraid to go back again. I feel like if you do come from, let's say like an upper middle class family, the best play is probably just to not stick your head up too high. And just kind of go with the flow, if you will. And you're going to be fine either way. You just have to be busy. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. And like, it's it, perspective and like opportunity is everything. And like, I know I was enormously fortunate that I was like, I was able to move back in with my parents and I wasn't like on the street and I was able to take those chances. But being in a position where you kind of can't really fail, I think crystallizes both your view and your mindset and forces you to kind of be successful. And that was a spot I was in for a long time where it was like, look, man, I always have like $40,000. Like I need a decent job. I need to do this. I need to figure it out. So it's not like, Oh, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. You find yourself taking those chances where it's like, this has to work no matter what it is. And then ideally you find yourself in a better spot and you're doing the startup or you're doing something else where you can fail and you're not that screwed, but different ways of doing things and different outcomes for sure. Okay, so you went to Boston. What was your opinion working in the U.S.? Was that a good thing? Was it as remarkable as some people make it out to be? Yeah, so like, my, so I was in Boston for two weeks when the world lit on fire for COVID, which was pretty funny. I got there literally when they had that uh, the conference of Italian bioscientists, 
which is basically the first major COVID outbreak in the United States, North America. But I, I did really like the atmosphere. So the startup I work for there is called Kobo. And basically it's it's fully remote. So they, they have an office in Cambridge. But so I got to meet some people. I got to talk and that was super valuable, build that network. But I quite like the city. I haven't been back since, but really like just working with uh, international teams in general. And that kind of like led me to where I am now. But team was super global. It was like half Canadians. Like there's a couple Belgians. We had folks in Nepal and Africa, like interesting stuff. But yeah, Boston, great town. Can't comment too much. I was there right when they kicked all the kids from uh, from Harvard home when COVID broke out, which was pretty weird. You take like a panicked flight back where the guy next to me was coughing miserably, but worked out in the, worked out in the end. Do you have a hot take on other places? In the States, not too much of a perspective. Like Canada specifically, like I love Toronto after just being here for eight months. I think it's a great spot. Very nascent in terms of tech, but I'm from Waterloo. So that, I think that's been something that's been cool to see just in my lifetime, how developed the hub has been. And like, I, I, I have enormous promise, I think, for, for the region. Like, I think it's just going to continue to grow and boom. Like I saw just the amount of venture capital funding they've raised in the last five years and it's great just to see that resilience because I remember when I was a kid, like RIM took off and everybody I know worked for RIM. And I'm not just talking like engineers and tech professionals, but like my uncle like drove trucks for RIM. Like it was a whole thing, right? And then RIM blew up and everybody lost their job and it was like, oh, was the end is near. And then the city kind of just doubled down on tech and now it's better than it ever was. So good to see. But in terms of the States, like Austin's got a lot of appeal. I think the Valley is maybe a little less appealing to move to these days as a Canadian, just because of the, the time zone difference and the flight makes it hard to get home. But Texas quite nice. And Miami, now that all the VCs and the, the finance guys are moving down there, it becomes more and more appealing by the day. Where do you think in Canada, there's a lot of potential? One of my thoughts was Calgary. You've got a young population. You've got a province that's rather dependent on oil that will probably go away at some point and the advent of a new technology will take its place. Stuff's cheap there. I think it's almost like a Denver or even a Seattle. It has the potential to be that. Do you see any other spots where you're keeping your eye on it? I think mostly just in the GTA, maybe Montreal a little bit. Like I've seen the big AI boom there and Montreal is a great place to be. I think it's just difficult. Like if you're, if you're a startup, you're up and coming right now. And as much as I want to see everybody stay in Canada, which is why like I'm super, super hopeful for Shopify to continue to be successful. I think it's just much more appealing to just move to the States, both on a terms of talent basis and access to financing. Where have you traveled that was like most eye-opening for you? So I, I just got back from Saudi the other week, which was, I don't want to say it was too eye-opening. It kind of looks as you expect. So I'd say the same thing for Dubai, honestly. But uh, Saudi, the, the most interesting thing to me was the opulence of kind of everything, at least in Riyadh. So if you've ever been to Dubai, Dubai has like all the really high-end things. So you've got like the Lamborghini dealership and then the Lamborghini dealership and then the Lamborghini dealership. And then there's like a KFC, right? The neatest thing I saw in Riyadh was like, you'll have, you know, there'll be like a nice car dealership and then there'll be a KFC and a, and like a, an oud shop and a textile shop. And every single one of these will be 50 foot ceilings and glass and marble and gold and opulent, no matter what they're selling. So that's very interesting, I guess. But I also found Boston to be that way too. Like not so much like Saudi, but I found Boston a little eye opening just as a Canadian, I think, because of the disparity i think between 
like you've got the nice Harvard Yard, Cambridge situation, and then the rich and poor is a little more visible in the States, I think, than in Toronto. So I was there, I think it was like a Sunday morning at like 6 a.m., like Kennedy School steps. And it's a fair bit, I hate to say it, but yeah, I think you have that mental picture in your head of the university where you're like, oh, it's going to be so spectacular. Like I've heard so much about it. And then like yeah, coming from Queens, I was like, man, it kind of, it's kind of like looks like shit, honestly, here and there. Uh, so very huge, very sprawling, very old, very cool, but I'll save my criticisms there. But. One thing I'm always curious to ask people is what they're passionate about that they don't get asked about a lot. Because, I don't know, I feel like sometimes you can lose sight of what you enjoy in your downtime. Uh, yeah, but I don't get asked about a lot. I'm super, super passionate about plants. And that's mostly thanks to May. So very, very pulled into that as of late last two years in the pandemic. Like my apartment is covered in them. And that's something I don't get to talk to about too much. And the other thing is, is probably food. Like I absolutely adore cooking. I love to try new things and explore new things as much as I can. And I think that's been something that's kind of shaped my interest in travel and like just kind of the world at large. Like I grew up on like Tony Bourdain. I love that. I was really, really sad to hear about his uh, his passing. That sort of thing always guided me, just like interest in different cultures, interest in different food, and interest in just uh, the world at large. So that's something I talk, get to talk about too much, I guess. I haven't gotten to travel in a very long time, I guess, until just recently. But very, very excited to see more of the world and just, just learn as much as I can. Okay, so this concludes my conversation with Brandon Duchenne. If you'd like this episode, be sure to give it a download as well as a rating and review wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Cassius Felicella. Thanks for listening.